0: Good morning, Bethel. Good morning, Barry. It's great to see you here. We missed you. So, um, is anybody wondering why those three sections in Matthew 5 and 6 um, that Jay read during our scripture reading, uh, why skip around so much and what in the world does Jesus fulfilling the law, not abolishing the law, and adultery and divorce and remarriage and motivation for giving have to do with each other. Do you see those three things? That was actually intentional. <laughs> and, and our text in Luke 16 pulls those three things together. And so that's why... Um, that text was the reading for this morning, and actually, that text in Matthew five and six, even though maybe just you know coming cold to it this morning, you might not have seen the connections. You may actually see the connections more clearly in Matthew six if you spend some time looking at it um, this afternoon. So I'd encourage you to do that even before you head into home group tonight to discuss um, this text. So we are going to look at Luke sixteen verses 14 to 18 this morning. So I'd invite you to turn there in uh, your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Um, They have some out at the Welcome Center out in the lobby. So we would love to give you one after the service, but there are also pews. uh, (laughs) There are pews, yes, and you're sitting on them. Um, There are Bibles uh, in the pew in front of you, and uh, if you're using that Bible, our text for this morning is on page 1044. So, Luke 16. And I'm going to actually begin reading at verse 13 because there's an important connection there. And we'll read verses 13 to 18. And then then I'll pray. And then we'll dive in. So, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one. And love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But... It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So you might see just from reading those verses, and they actually do hang together, (laughs) Good thing we've got some help in Matthew six because why in the world does Jesus go from that to that to that, and how does he get from here to there? Um, we need to consider that this morning, and we certainly need His help to do so. So let's let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for your. We thank you that you are enough. That you are more than enough. That your grace is completely sufficient. For all of our needs, our greatest need, most certainly, Lord, our sin and the separation that it brings between you, a holy God, and us, rebellious, sinful creatures. We thank you that your grace is enough, that the work of Jesus on the cross is enough, more than enough, to reconcile us to you and to make peace with you. And we thank you also that your day-to-day grace that was all purchased for us on the cross is also more than enough for us. We don't need to look elsewhere for our own security, our own identity. And yet we do it all the time. I pray, Lord, that you would show us how we look to other things and other people for our justification. And I pray that after you show us that, would you show us again with soul-thrilling, soul-filling encouragement the fact that your grace is sufficient again. And that none of those other competing gods is ever enough. So I pray that we would completely, decisively turn from our spring-loaded attempts at justifying ourselves in the sight of other people. And I pray that we would... Exult in justification by faith alone in Christ alone, as a gift of your all sufficient grace alone, so that we are filled up with your fullness and it just spills out on others in love. We need your help. This is a tough passage, it's confusing. Lord, would you please help me to be clear? Would you please um, teach and shape and affect us by your word? Help us to be attentive to you this morning. We need to hear from you. We need to not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. So would you please give us that grace and that help this morning so that we would be people that love the fact that, that Jesus is enough and reflect the fact brightly, clearly, that Jesus is enough. In his name we pray, amen. So, uh, last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 16, and there's this strange parable, this strange story of this unrighteous manager, and Jesus uses this parable. Um, it's, It's an odd parable, it's confusing, what is this all about? He turns it and he says... You know, just like this guy was wise, clever, shrewd in the use of unrighteous mammon, okay, he knew he was going to get canned, and so he called some of these people and quickly, hey, make your note, um, you owe him 100 bushels, or 100, whatever it is, 100, (laughs) make it 50, Um, it's the olive oil, and then the second one is the bushels, make it 80, and so he's setting himself up for hospitality when he gets canned. And so Jesus turns that odd parable and says, make friends for yourselves in the use of unrighteous mammon so that when it fails, when money fails, you will receive a rich welcome into eternal habitations. In other words, use your money in a seek first the kingdom sort of way so that when you enter eternal dwellings, you will have a rich welcome from all these, quote unquote, friends that your resources have had a part, you've played a part in them getting there. Okay, so spend your money in a way that is eternally um, useful. So, he then says, and I'm actually going to make a quick clarification. There's another story coming. This is transitional material. Um, teasing out some implications, giving some application to his disciples as well as to the Pharisees in 10 to 18. And then there's another story about the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story? So there's, there's two rich men on either end, and then this stuff in, in, in between. We're looking at this stuff in between. But I want to make one clarification because I didn't quite get it right last week, and I want to just clarify something. So last week, if you look at verse 10... It says, He who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, and he who is righteous, unrighteous in very little is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Okay? So I said, remember how I, I um, if you weren't here, sorry, um, you can listen to it online if you want to. Um, just bear with me if you weren't here. Um, but one of, the, one of the headings in the bulletin was, on the little outline was, faithfulness doesn't come with the, ter- with the territory. Um, in other words, sometimes we think, well, you know, if I had more, then I would be generous. As if somehow generosity's out there in a different territory, different circumstantial situation, life situation. Okay? And so that's what I was initially thinking in the week, and then um, I was thinking, no, 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 no. He's actually talking about, um, he's talking about faithfulness with money on this earth, which is a little thing, and you also be faithful in much, meaning eternal riches, okay? So all that to say, I overswung. <laughs> okay, let me see if I can make this clear. Look at verse 10. He who's faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who's unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. That's true, on its own. It stands. Okay, so I I shouldn't have cut that (laughs) bullet point in the thing, okay? It's not a situational thing. Well, if I was on the other side, greener, pun intended, side of the fence, then I would be gracious, okay? Faithful giving doesn't come with certain territory. It's a desire and a priority thing wherever you are, whether you have a little or a lot. So it's faithfulness in stewardship flows from a faithful heart not from greater cash flow or whatever. Just like contentment in Christ, or contentment is not in how much you have, but in Christ, okay? So I said that Jesus was, that the point Jesus was making um, was not that one, but that it was all about verses 11 and 12, okay? Which are, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Okay? And then as I looked at it this week, ah, that was dumb. I overswung. Verse 10 does say something true on its own. It is heading toward 11 and 12, but I shouldn't have said that's not the point because he is saying he who is faithful in very little is faithful in much. That's true. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. That's true. And then let me just show you the ultimate scale. Let me show you how that's true on the ultimate scale. Therefore, if you haven't been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, which is a very little thing in the eternal perspective, who will entrust to you the true riches? Okay, maybe that seems like a minor thing. I just want to be just like Iwana tells the kids to be, right? Present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Okay, so I said that wasn't the point, and it is part of the point. So I wanted to just clarify that. Is that clear I didn't start out making it clear but I think it got clearer okay so anyway it's both and both of those things are true yes verse 10 is true on its own and if you want to see that on the grandest scale it has to do with our faithfulness with everything on this earth and the true riches that await us if we seek first the kingdom and lay up treasure in heaven Okay, now, verse 13. There's an outline in the bulletin if it's helpful for you. Verses 13 through 15. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, note that, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, Okay, and actually there's a little subtle play on words here because do you remember it says, make friends for yourselves by the use of unrighteous mammon. So you either, you can either use money to love people, make friends. This is not a manipulative thing. You know how Jesus is using it, okay? Because he's turning that parable. So you can either use money to love people, in this life and even for the sake of eternity, or you can use people because you love money. And that's what these Pharisees are guilty of. They are lovers of money, and they will actually use their religiosity, their status, and so forth. They'll use people because they love money. Okay, so the Pharisees... You can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one, love the other. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him, scoffing at Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. He sees through it all. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So here the, the Pharisees are sneering, they're scoffing. They had made up their minds, okay? They have moved beyond, remember back at the beginning of 15 before the, the story of the lost coin and sheep, and, or sheep and coin and, and uh, the prodigal son? They've moved beyond the grumbling that we saw back at the beginning of, verse, uh, of chapter 15, verse 2. Now they're in an open attempt to discredit him as a legitimate teacher, okay? But look at what is going on here. It is really easy to write these Pharisees off, put the black hat on them quickly, and say, I thank God I'm not like these money-loving, self-righteous Pharisees. Okay? We need to be careful that we don't end up in Luke 18, you know, where there was the self-righteous Pharisee who said, I thank God I'm not like this guy. So let's work hard not to do that. We've talked before as we've walked through the book of Luke how much we need Jesus... Even if we are genuine Christians, we still need Jesus to expose our inner Pharisee so that we can repent of the vestiges of that older brother heart, okay, that we looked at two weeks ago. So, look at how he describes them. It's a little closer, closer to home than we'd like to admit. We will serve the one we love, okay? Do you see it there? You can't serve two masters hate the one, in other words, reject the one, love the other. They are ones who justify themselves in the sight of God because they're lovers of money. God knows their hearts. He knows what's in their hearts. So we serve the one we love. We love the one we serve. These Pharisees loved money. And let it be known, just in case we have a false... um, picture of them, the Pharisees in the first century were not necessarily known to be a rich crowd. Some of them were. Some of the leaders were. But by and large, that wasn't necessarily the case. So you don't have to be rich to love money or to be tempted to love money. So they loved money and they justified themselves in the sight of people, of men. As long as they look good in the eyes of others and had those people's esteem, they were happy. But God saw through all of that. He knew their hearts. He knew what they really loved. And in his sight, in his eyes, it's an abomination. It was detestable in his sight. That language of abomination, um, something that's detestable, that is strong language. That's used of idolatry. And they would know that. <laughs> okay? He is Saying, you are covetous, idolatrous. The first commandment and last commandment are two sides of the same coin. Have no other gods. Don't covet. In fact, Paul says it. Covetousness, which is idolatry, in Colossians 3. Okay, so God sees through all of this. This is a God, a worship issue. Who's your God? Okay, you can't serve God and money. God and mammon. So do you see those two phrases there in verse 15? In the sight of men, you are those who justify yourselves. In the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. And then look at the bottom. It's detestable in the sight of God. These are parallel phrases. This is huge stuff. That This actually needs to form a grid through which we regularly examine our hearts. Okay, where do you want your justification to take place? Yes. You can know the doctrine of justification by faith and give lip service to that, check off the box, and still live as if your justification is somewhere else. Okay? Do you want to be justified, esteemed, approved in the eyes of people, especially certain people? Or do you want to be justified, approved, accepted in the sight of God? Okay? Just stop and think with me about this. Have you ever noticed what happens to you, whether you are relatively materially wealthy or poor by our standards? Have you ever noticed what happens to you when you get around people who are wealthy and successful? Has their presence ever changed your behavior? At a party, in a conversation, at work, Certain people in your neighborhood, in your circle of friends. Okay, have you ever noticed what happens to you when you get around people who are wealthy and successful? Have you ever acted and talked in such a way that you showed that you really wanted them to approve of you? Have you ever noticed that maybe you started to act a little bit like a chameleon, even? Have you ever seen any of that at work? We can want so badly to be in with this group that it dictates how we dress or how we talk or even how we relate to others whom that person may approve or disapprove of. Why is that? Why do we want to justify ourselves in their eyes? Why do we want to prove that we belong in their favor and in their esteem? Okay. Well, Again, just tease this out. Think about it a little bit. Don't you admire their poise? Don't you admire their lifestyle? Don't you ad- admire their impressive resume? Maybe their self-confidence. Maybe you admire how in control they are, apparently. You admire their style. You admire their social skill. And, and please don't just think, you know, if, if you're part of a younger generation, you might think, yeah, that's those like corporate sellout type people. Okay, just change the picture. The cool factor, the hip factor. Okay. Admire whatever it is. I mean, what are the images that Fifth Avenue bombards us with? Cool, powerful, sexy, sensuous, in control, rich, beautiful, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Do you want to be justified and esteemed in the sight of people for those reasons? in the eyes of those kinds of people for those reasons. Okay, so for the Pharisees, their love of money and desire for esteem showed itself in an external religiosity. There's a lot of Jews around them who were impressed by their ultra-orthodox, scrupulous behavior. They had power, they had clout. They were highly esteemed. For us, it could be a completely different set of values, but the danger of self-justification is still the same. You don't have to, and you don't have to have these things to be in danger, you just have to want them. Okay, so justification is a heart-level issue. It's not an external conformity issue. That's pretty clear from what Jesus is saying here. So look back at verse 15. He says, so much of what is highly esteemed in the eyes of men is detestable in the eyes of God. And God sees and knows our hearts. And the only thing that matters is what we are in God's sight, right? We'll we'll consider that a little bit more at the end. So do you remember when Jesus said you've got to hate father, mother, sister, brother, yes, even your own life, and we learned that that hate language is not this emotional kind of vindictive thing. It's rather a decisive rejection of someone other than God ruling you. Okay, and being your master. And so the same thing happens when he says you can't serve two masters, you or hate the one. We're not supposed to have this visceral, kind of emotional, you know, toward currency. We are supposed to decisively reject money as our God. Okay? So <laughs> if we're gonna follow Jesus like he's talking about here, we ought to hate those inclinations in our hearts. This is why I said we need a grid. When we see that stuff bubbling up, when we have this desire for the approval of all that's esteemed in this world that's actually detestable in God's sight, the pride and the, the, the self-confidence and the self-everything, we ought to hate that inclination. In other words, we ought to decisively turn from that inclination, rejecting, refusing to be ruled by mammon, by the values of this world. We must have no other gods before God. We should want to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and then our neighbor as ourselves. Isn't that what the law is all about? So you remember what Jesus said when he was asked by that scribe, that, that law expert scholar who wanted to set him up, what, what's the greatest commandment? He's testing him. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. If you were to sum up the Old Testament, that's how you sum it up. Love God, love your neighbor. In fact, the Ten Commandments is just explication, unpacking of the greatest commandment that has two sides. Love God, love your neighbor. Even if it's don't move a boundary marker. Why? Why? Because that's unloving to your neighbor. That's his property. Don't try to push the the limits. You you see, like all all of the law just breaks down to ultimately love God, love neighbor. Okay? So let's see if we can figure out now how Jesus got from verse 15 to verse 16. The law and the kingdom. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, that's John the Baptist. He's this transitional figure because he's the voice calling the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, and Jesus is the Lord. He is God in the flesh. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached by Jesus, obviously, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Okay, this is a sticky little wicket that we need to squeeze through, okay? Um, the commentators spill all kinds of ink on this one. What in the world does it mean? Good question. Um, doesn't seem like they know and I can see why. Okay. Um, really quickly, this is not to you know, try to play the Greek trump card here. I'm just trying to say this is what happens when you're trying to understand what the text says. In Greek, if a verb is in present tense, there's the passive voice and the middle voice. They're actually in the same form, okay? In other words, you can't see from just looking at the letters which it is, middle or passive. It's the same form. So you have to make the decision based on context. So if it's in the middle voice here, then the translation given here is accurate, forcing their way into it. If it's passive, then the translation would be something like everyone is being, do you see how it's passive? Action is being done to the subject rather than the subject doing the action. Everyone is being forced or urged into it. So if you go to the context, you actually find support for both of those options, right? If it's everyone is forcing his way into it, then the idea would be similar to strive to enter through the narrow door, like back in chapter 13, okay? It would be in line with the boldness of that woman in Luke 7. She just entered in, weeping, this sinful woman, boldly to Jesus' feet, and she's wiping her feet with her. With, with her hair and her tears, wiping his feet. Or the urgency of chapters 12 and 13, that they should be ready and press in. Okay, it would also be in line with the call to wise and decisive use of money for the sake of a rich welcome into heaven. Okay, if it's everyone is being urged into it, then the emphasis falls on the everyone is being urged. And that's what's so offensive to the Pharisees in the context here. They're scandalized by the fact that Jesus is urging all kinds of people to come. He's being welcoming to the sinners and the unclean, just like that that prodigal son. The kingdom is all about righteousness, right? You can't just let anyone in. If you really place a, a premium on purity and cleanness, you just can't urge everyone to come in like that indiscriminately. Okay, so which is it? I hate to say it, and I don't do this very often, (laughs) because usually the Bible is very clear as long as we really wrestle with it, but I don't know. (laughs) There's a case for both. I lean towards the latter, okay? But either way, it's clear that Jesus is making two points in this section we're looking at. He's making a point about money, particularly about loving it and being ruled by it, and he's making a point about the law particularly about his relationship to it and the Pharisees' relationship to it. Okay, And either way, here's here's the bottom line. The Pharisees think Jesus is playing fast and loose with the law. So he turns the corner here in verse 16, and he actually turns the tables on them. You think I'm loose on the law? You think I have no regard for it? Oh, no. Look at verse 17. Listen, if if you want to know what I think about the law. Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. He's saying it would be easier for the universe to implode and disintegrate than for even a little jot, a little marking of ink, an ink stroke in Hebrew to fail. That's my view on the law. See, they're saying this guy's not a faithful Jew. Let alone a rabbi, and certainly not the Messiah. Please fast and loose with the law. Why should we be listening to his, his teaching on money? Let's sneer at him. We're the righteous ones. He's undermined his authority by his sloppy treatment of the law, not washing his hands, healing on the Sabbath, sloppy living in regard to cleanness and separation, glutton and a drunkard. Here's the irony. Jesus has the same claim against them. You don't take the law seriously. You're missing the point. If you Pharisees took the law seriously, you would be taking care of the poor at your gate, which is where he's going to go next. That's the whole point of the Good Samaritan story. Do you remember what led up to the Good Samaritan story? I'm not going to read the whole parable again but listen the lawyer stood up put him to the test and said teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and he said to him what's written in the law how does it read to you the guy answers you shall love the lord of god with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and he said to him you've answered correctly do this and you'll live and then it says this but wishing to justify himself he said to jesus who's my neighbor so Jesus is turning the tables and showing them that they are the ones who are selectively applying the law. They're the ones cherry-picking the parts of the law that, will, that they can live to this fastidious T. You know, dotting their I's and crossing their T's in certain categories. And everybody's Impressed. All the while, they're conveniently downplaying or avoiding or misinterpreting the heart of the law. Okay, the Pharisees, and I'm trying to lead into the next section because where, how in the world did he get from there to divorce and remarriage? Well, the Pharisees were well known, at least among one rabbinic school called Hillel, to have been a certain way with the interpretation of the law in regards to divorce, okay? You can look at Deuteronomy 24 later, but their interpretation gave the man all kinds of room to do what he wanted, and it boxed the woman and put her at this man's mercy. Maybe you've heard, you know, the citation of a Jewish source that read of, this, of a man who could divorce his wife for burning his dinner. How many have heard that before? okay. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have said you've heard that. Okay, so now you've heard that. Okay, that's, you can look it up. So Jesus gets in the face of their no-fault divorce culture, which was a result of their sloppy interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. They're just kind of making room where it's convenient. And so he says, let me tell you, not a jot or tittle will pass away. That's my view on the law. Let me give you a case in point. Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who's divorced from a husband commits adultery. So to those Pharisees who are passing out divorce certificates and thinking it's totally fine, this is shocking because here's this rigorous interpretation of the law, and they are guilty and, he, and Jesus is really, he picked this one on purpose. Adultery was punishable by death in the Old Testament, wasn't it? In fact, you could say that adultery was an abomination. It was detestable. See the irony? They think Jesus welcoming tax collectors and sinners to the table is detestable. They think he's thrown the law to the wind. All the while they're doing interpretive gymnastics to justify their lack of love decisions, like divorce and remarriage on a whim, or ignoring the needy and lost sheep among them that they ought to be going after. And they're hiding their love of money behind this facade. Now, this is used in the case-in-point sense. Okay, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time qualifying this, some of you just for what this is worth this could be new for some of you and I want to just at least briefly be clear on what this means Um, some of you have divorces in your past okay and all of us know people who have divorced and been divorced okay does this mean that divorce is the unforgivable sin that you are perpetually committing idolatry I'm sorry adultery if you had have a divorce in your past No. Okay? It is not the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is the sin you can't repent of, that you don't want to repent of. Okay? Now, does this mean also that there's never a ground for divorce? No. Okay? We teach here that the Bible allows two exceptions. Neither of them necessarily must lead to divorce. In fact, oftentimes what we would counsel is that the the person who is being sinned against ought to pray and seek for that restoration and be willing to forgive and go through the fire, you know, um, just hoping that God would bring about a miraculous reconciliation. So neither of them necessarily must lead to divorce, but both of them are in their appropriate context when. It's been processed, well, legitimate exceptions, okay? First Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of the hard-hearted desertion of an unbelieving spouse. You can look at that later. Again, I, I don't want to kick up too much of a can of worms here, and yet I don't want to just skim right past this and not speak clearly on the issue. Um, secondly, Matthew 19, Jesus speaks of divorce and remarriage um, as committing adultery, just like this text except for sexual immorality. Okay? So when there's been an adulterous breach of that marital commitment, again, not necessarily this is the best option, but sometimes there is freedom for the person who's been sinned against to um, remarry. Okay. I know that I'm raising lots of issues, and if you want to talk about any of them personally, I'd be happy to talk to any of you about them. Okay? And we... Have made mistakes in the past, haven't we? And God can forgive us of those things. Sometimes we don't realize, depending on where it was in your life or what was going on, God can can forgive and heal and do all kinds of wonderful work um, despite us, okay? Nevertheless, let's not run too quickly to those exceptions or mute or water down what Jesus is saying here, okay? The point of what he's saying here is we can't do cut and paste Christianity. Keeping the bits we like and the ones we don't like that cut against the grain of our soul, pitching those bits that impinge on our desires. Okay? The God wants me to be happy sort of stuff. Okay? Of course he does. (laughs) Like really happy. So trust him. Even when his commands cut against the grain of your soul. So he's saying that there are a lot of Pharisees back then and today who call themselves Christians and they are conveniently selective with which laws they abide by in order to justify themselves and say that they're righteous Christians. Obviously the Pharisees weren't Christians. I'm saying this intentionally to modernize it right now so that we don't hold it out at arm's length. They will even give lip service to true Christian doctrine, but they justify their persistent disobedience by appealing to their external faithfulness somewhere else. Have you ever seen that seed in your soul? I've seen this in my soul. Have you ever toyed with this where you're convicted of something that needs to... Change something you know is wrong and you want it, or you knew it was wrong, but you did it anyway. And if you deal with it, there's going to be fallout. So you come to a fork in the road when that kind of thing happens. You can either be honest with yourself and with God and with others and seek to trust the Lord. It's sometimes a fight of faith. It's walking through the fire sometimes, not avoiding what God's word says about it. So you can confess and repent to God, ask forgiveness of any you've wronged. Or you can try to hide that thing or ignore it. Focus on other aspects of obedience that are a little more manageable for you. And you try to convince yourself and others that you're fine. At first you feel guilty and uneasy and you try to ignore it because you really don't want to have to deal with that. And you just kind of do some stuff. It's it's almost like a, a makeup call over here. You're trying to justify yourself. If you keep up the game long enough, you will become hardened in that trajectory and you start to believe the lie yourself that you are justified on the basis of all the other things that you've done. And then, if someone comes along and exposes you, or attempts or threatens to, what happens? We we get really critical of those people. (laughs) We might even attack them in our minds or verbally. That's what the Pharisees are doing with Jesus. He's exposing them. And they had to attack him to silence the threat because he's he's right and they're wrong. I've done this. Have you done this? Like growing up in the church? Um, Let's see. I have to pick one of the many. (laughs) Um, One of the things before I was a Christian, I had stolen a bunch of stuff when I was, you know, pre-teen. And I did not want to deal with that. So I did all kinds of Christian things and thought I was just fine. Faith looked like looking that thing in the face and trusting God. Okay? Sometimes it's some idolatrous desire. You really, really want it. You really, really want it. And You're not willing to give it up, not willing to give it up. So if you can just have it a little bit and then do some other things over here, maybe you can kind of salve your conscience. It's just a dangerous trajectory. So this is all pretty heavy. (laughs) Convicting. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay? Because Jesus wants to free us from the slavery of self-justification. It's such slavery, and there's such good news for Pharisees like us. And you know what? The answer to our Pharisaical impulses and hearts is not in here, even though we've been doing some probing and some peeling away. The freedom doesn't come from endlessly peeling back the onion. (laughs) The title of the message is Seeking to Justify. That's what they were doing, yes, in the sight of men. But Jesus, I mean, you know, he makes it very clear that's a dead-end street. But you know what? Someone else is seeking to justify. Jesus says in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and to save the lost. The Pharisees rejected that purpose. They wanted to establish and prove their own righteousness rather than own and admit their lostness. Okay, which back then, again, just so you know what, what's going on here, that would be like a pastor admitting he's not a Christian. For these Pharisees to go through with this baptism of repentance, like a sinner. If they had the reputation to uphold, you know, what would people think if leaders all admitted that they were sinners? So they were unwilling to accept his righteousness as a gift of Grace. So Jesus says to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, if you're trying to justify yourself, if I'm trying to justify myself, we always have something to prove. Our righteousness by its very nature, if we are trying to do it ourselves, is fragile and insecure. Someone or something might threaten the relative adequacy of your righteousness, somebody that's better than you at that. All of a sudden, you start to get jealous and nervous, and what's going on? And you're exposed. What if, what if you're totally exposed? Then, then where would you be? Who would you be? This is identity stuff. This is core stuff. Okay, so I'm going to close with a story here. Um, I'm listening to this book, thanks to Nate Bird' recommendation. He's in our home group, um, co-leader with me. Um, he recommended this book called *Fearless: The Undaunted Courage and Ultimate Sacrifice of Navy SEAL Team Six Operator Adam Brown*. Oh man, it's a good book. Um, so just yesterday morning, I'm still listening to it. Cleaning the house, listening to some of it. There was a part where it talked about how Adam. Never ridiculed the younger recruits. Okay? Talks about his Christian faith. Um, And he went through drugs and all kinds of just terrible stuff. Um, God rescued him from all of that. So he had been in the gutter. He'd been arrested and all kinds of stuff um, before he got saved. Um, So, and, and also had some relapses afterwards. But anyway, he was a part of an elite unit that is only reached by 1% of Navy SEALs. Okay? Not just, you know, the elite nature of the SEALs themselves, all of them. So he was the best of the best of the best. Okay? When the best of the best SEALs tried to reach that level, that group that he was in, they went through another level another incredibly rigorous testing phase and during that time they also did menial tasks like cleaning bathrooms and taking out the trash so one seal was taking out the trash he's a new recruit adam said here let me help you with that the new guy wonders if adam is going to dump the trash on the ground and then berate him for it You, you can imagine how that would happen right have you ever wondered why that would happen The new guy wondered if he would do that. He never acted that way toward the new recruits. He treated them with respect and he mentored them. Even if they were way below his rank, he treated these other guys with respect. That is rare. Why is that so rare? Because you know what, even the the studs of the studs, even the elite of the elite, like tough as nails guys, are so insecure. They're seeking to justify themselves by their success, just like all of us. It's just a different scenario. Why do so many of the top guys berate and ridicule those lower than them? I know there's lots of reasons, but at least one of them is because there are others above them and they wish they had ranked higher. And they also know that they might not or probably won't make it as high as they'd like to get. And you know what? If your self-justification is bound in this upward mobility thing, it is dangerously fragile. You suffer an injury, there's some politics, so fragile, and you hate that. You hate that you can't control the very thing that you want for your security. Anything can happen. So seeking to justify yourself inevitably leads you to be critical and prideful. Read insecure. You've got so much to prove. You have so much to lose. So whether it's the seals or the Pharisees or us, it's the same thing. Jesus was the ultimate threat to the Pharisees. They had the esteem of the people. They had a steady paycheck because of it. They were viewed as extremely pious and righteous. They liked it that way. They constructed their own righteousness, and it was working pretty well until Jesus came along and called their bluff. And where we're convicted of our self-justification projects, guess what? What if we just gave up the game? What if we just remember the gospel and keep preaching it to ourselves? What if no one is righteous? (laughs) Not even one. Well, wait, there was just one. (laughs) Just one who was perfectly righteous. What if he lived the life that you have not lived? Just be honest with it, you haven't. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to pretend anything. You haven't, and nobody has. Even that person that seems so put together, they haven't either. And being put together is not gonna bring you freedom and life. And what if he died the death that you deserve to die for your unrighteousness? And what if the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. What if we really believed that? What if we really believed justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone? What if we lost our appetite hated that appetite for the fickle and the mirage-like esteem and approval of people? What if we just gave up the game? What if we knew, we really knew that we were righteous? I mean, here's this guy who's a total stud, but he knew what kind of a sinner he was. And because he knew that the only reason he was there was God's grace, it actually, that vertical justification, that vertical approval, that vertical grace poured out horizontally on guys that were way under him in rank with love and respect. Because he didn't have anything to prove. And he didn't have anything to lose because he knew who he was. Not because he was an elite Team 6 SEAL, but because he was a child of God. Because he was a soldier in God's army. Just like anybody can be, even if you have no shot at being a SEAL. So what if we really knew that we were righteous? Not because of anything in us. But because we are in Him, we're in Christ. Okay, just imagine the freedom. Just imagine the love to God and to neighbor, all in any neighbor. Because again, you don't have to worry about appearances. This love just starts to spill out indiscriminately. We're no better than anyone, we've got nothing to prove. All this we've freely received, and so we freely give, we freely love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So God first loved us, and he opens our eyes to see the greatness of that love in Christ on the cross. Faith, we see it. And we believe, and we're justified fully and finally, in that moment. But we are still kind of stuck in some of those old patterns and we need to keep believing justification by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. And by faith, as we drink in the grace of the gospel day after day after day, we're filled up. He's enough. He's more than enough. Nothing to prove. And that vertical security frees us and fills us and it works itself out in love to our neighbor generously sacrificially in indiscriminate love to those around us let's pray oh god what good news is <laughs> the gospel Thank you for reminding us of it this morning. Thank you for exposing our deeply embedded inclinations to self-justification. And I pray that we would be wise to see that ugly head when it rears. And I pray that we would hate it and turn away from it, die to it, and keep looking to Jesus as our righteousness, as our, the only source of our justification. So we believe, help our unbelief, so that we might be filled up with your grace and freely, joyfully, pouring out that grace. Be people who are pouring out that grace on those around us, just like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. May the grace and peace of our great righteous Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, be with you all. Amen. Go in peace.